be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir, Part 12, The Final Part, The Greatest Mountaineer. We will learn about Galen Clark, a skilled mountaineer who explored the magnificent Yosemite Valley and discovered the awe-inspiring Hetch Hetchy Valley. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Galen Clark Galen Clark was the best mountaineer I ever met, and one of the kindest and most amiable of all my mountain friends. I first met him at his Wawona Ranch 43 years ago on my first visit to Yosemite. I had entered the valley with one companion by way of Coulterville and returned by what was then known as the Mariposa Trail. Both trails were buried in deep snow, where the elevation was from 5,000 to 7,000 feet above sea level in the sugar pine and silver fir regions. We had no great difficulty, however, in finding our way by the trends of the main features of the topography. Botanizing by the way, we made slow, plodding progress, and we were again about out of provisions when we reached Clark's hospitable cabin at Wawona. He kindly furnished us with flour and a little sugar and tea, and my companion, who complained of the benumbing poverty of a strictly vegetarian diet, gladly accepted Mr. Clark's offer of a piece of bear that had just been killed. After a short talk about bears and the forest and the way of the big trees, we pushed on up through the Wawona firs and sugar pines and camped in the now famous Mariposa Grove. Later, after making my home in Yosemite Valley, I became well acquainted with Mr. Clark while he was guardian. 
He was elected again and again in this important office by different boards of commissioners on account of his efficiency and his real love of the valley. Although nearly all my mountaineering has been done without companions, I had the pleasure of having Gallen Clark with me on three excursions. About 35 years ago, I invited him to accompany me on a trip through the big Tulum Canyon from Hetch Hetchy Valley. The canyon up to that time had not been explored, and knowing that the difference in the elevation of the river at the head of the canyon and in Hetch Hetchy was about 5,000 feet, we expected to find some magnificent cataracts or falls, nor were we disappointed. When we were leaving Yosemite, an ambitious young man begged leave to join us. I strongly advised him not to attempt such a long, hard trip, for it would undoubtedly prove very trying for an inexperienced climber. He assured us, however, that he was equal to anything, would gladly meet every difficulty as it came, and cause us no hindrance or trouble of any sort. So at last, after repeating our advice that he give up the trip, we consented to his joining us. We entered the canyon by way of Hetch Hetchy Valley, each carrying his own provisions and making his own tea, porridge, bed, etc. In the morning, on the second day out from Hetch Hetchy, we came to what is now known as Muir Gorge, and Mr. Clark, without hesitation, prepared to force a way through it, wading and jumping from one submerged boulder to another through the torrents, bracing and steadying himself with a long pole. Though the river was then rather low, the savage, roaring, surging song it was ringing was rather nerve-trying, especially to our inexperienced companion. With careful assistance, however, I managed to get him through, but this hard trial, naturally enough, proved too much and he informed us, pale and trembling, that he could go no further. I gathered some wood at the upper throat of the gorge, made a fire for him, and advised him to feel at home and make himself comfortable, hoped he would enjoy the grand scenery and the songs of the water oozel which haunted the gorge, and assured him that we would return some time in the night though it might be late, as we wished to go on through the entire canyon if possible. We pushed our way through the dense chaparral and over the earthquake taluses with such speed that we reached the foot of the upper cataract while we had still an hour or so of daylight for the return trip. It was long after dark when we reached our adventurous but nerve-shaking companion, who, of course, was anxious and lonely, not being accustomed to solitude. However kindly and flowerly and full of sweet bird song and stream song. Being tired, we simply lay down in restful comfort on the riverbank beside a good fire instead of trying to go down the gorge in the dark or climb over its high shoulder to our blankets and provisions 
which we had left in the morning in a tree at the foot of the gorge. I remember Mr. Clark remarking that if he had had his choice that night between provisions and blankets, he would choose his blankets. The next morning, in about an hour, we had crossed over the ridge through which the gorge is cut, reached our provisions, made tea, and had a good breakfast. As soon as we had returned to Yosemite, I obtained fresh provisions, pushed off alone up the head of Yosemite Creek Basin, entered the canyon by a side canyon, and completed the exploration up to the Tulum Meadows. It was on this first trip from Hetch Hetchy to the Upper Cataracts that I had convincing proof of Mr. Clark's daring and skill as a mountaineer particularly in fjording torrents, and forcing his way through thick chaparral. I found it somewhat difficult to keep up with him in dense, tangled brush, though in jumping on boulder taluses and slippery cobble beds, I had no difficulty in leaving him behind. After I had discovered the glacier on Mount Lyle and Mount McClure, Mr. Clark kindly made a second excursion with me, to assist in establishing a line of stakes across the McClure Glacier to measure its rate of flow. On this trip, we also climbed Mount Lyle together, when the snow which covered the glacier was melted into unleaning, icy blades which were extremely difficult to cross, not being strong enough to support our weight, nor wide enough apart to enable us to stride across each blade as it was met. Here again, I, being lighter, had no difficulty in keeping ahead of him. While resting after wearisome staggering and fawning, he stared at the marvellous ranks of leaning blades and said, I think I have travelled all sorts of trails and canyons, through all kinds of brush and snow, but this gets me. Mr. Clark, at my urgent request, joined my small party on a trip to King's River, Yosemite, by way of the high mountains, most of the way without a trail. He joined us at the Mariposa Big Tree Grove and intended to go all the way, but finding that, on account of the difficulties encountered, the time required was much greater than he expected, he turned back near the head of the North Fork of the King's River. In cooking his mess of oatmeal porridge and making tea, his pot was always the first to boil, and I used to wonder why, with all his skill in scrambling through brush in the easiest way, and preparing his meals, he was so utterly careless about his beds. He would lie down anywhere on any ground, rough or smooth, without taking pains even to remove cobbles or sharp angled rocks protruding through the grass or gravel, saying that his own bones were as hard as any stone and could do him no harm. His kindness to all Yosemite visitors and mountaineers was marvelously constant and uniform. He was not a good businessman, and in building an extensive hotel 
and barns at Wawana, before the travel to Yosemite had been greatly developed. He borrowed money, mortgaged his property, and lost it all. Though not the first to see Mariposa Big Tree Grove, he was the first to explore it, after he had heard from a prospector who had passed through the grove and had gave him the indefinite information that there were some wonderful big trees up there on top of the Wawona Hill, and that he believed they must be of the same kind that had become so famous and well-known in the Calaveras Grove farther north. On this information, Galen Clark told me, he went up and thoroughly explored the grove, counting the trees and measuring the largest, and becoming familiar with it. He stated also that he explored the forest to the southward, and had discovered the much larger Fresno Grove of about two square miles, six or seven miles distance from the Mariposa Grove. Unfortunately, most of the Fresno Grove has been cut and flumed down the railroad near Madeira. Mr. Clark was truly and literally a gentleman. I never heard him utter a hasty, angry, fault-finding word. His voice was uniformly pitched at a rather low tone, perfectly even, although lances of his eyes and slight intonations of his voice often indicated that something funny or mildly sarcastic was coming. But upon the whole, he was serious and industrious, and, however deep and fun-provoking a story might be, he never indulged in boisterous laughter. He was very fond of scenery, and once told me after I became acquainted with him that he liked nothing in the world better than climbing to the top of a high ridge or mountain and looking off. He preferred the mountain ridges and domes in the Yosemite regions on account of the wealth and beauty of the forests. Oftentimes he would take his rifle, a few pounds of bacon, a few pounds of flour, and a single blanket and go off hunting, for no other reason than to explore and get acquainted with most beautiful points of view within a journey of a week or two from the Wawona home. On these trips, he was always alone and could indulge in tranquil enjoyment of nature to his heart's content. He said that on these trips, when he was a sufficient distance from home in a neighborhood where he wished to linger, he always shot deer, sometimes a grouse, and occasionally a bear. After diminishing the weight of a deer or bear by eating part of it, he carried as much as possible of the best of the meat to Wawona, and from his hospitable, well-supplied cabin, no weary wanderer ever went hungry or unrested. The value of the mountain air in prolonging life is well exemplified in Mr. Clark's case. While working in the mines, he contracted a severe cold that settled on his lungs and finally caused severe inflammation and bleeding, and none of his friends thought he would ever recover. The physicians told him he had but a short time to live. It was then that he repaired to the beautiful sugar pine woods at Wawona and took up a claim 
including the fine meadows there, and built his cabin, began his life of wandering and exploring in the glorious mountains about him, usually going bareheaded. In a remarkably short time, his lungs were healed. He was one of the most sincere tree lovers I ever knew. About twenty years before his death, he made choice of a plot in the Yosemite Cemetery on the north side of the valley, not far from the Yosemite Fall, and selecting a dozen or so of the seedling sequoias in the Mariposa Grove, he brought them to the valley and planted them around the spot he had chosen for his last rest. The ground there is gravelly and dry. By careful watering, he finally nursed most of the seedlings into good, thrifty trees, and doubtless they will long shade the grave of their blessed lover and friend. Hetchetchi Valley Yosemite is so wonderful that we are apt to regard it as an exceptional creation, the only valley of its kind in the world. But nature is not so poor as to have only one of anything. Several other Yosemites have been discovered in the Sierra that occupy the same relative positions on the range and were formed by the same forces in the same kind of granite. One of these, the Hetch Hetchy Valley, is in the Yosemite National Park, about 20 miles from Yosemite, and is easily accessible to all sorts of travelers, by road and trail that leaves the big oak flat road at Bronson Meadows a few miles below Crane Flat, and to mountaineers by way of Yosemite Creek Basin and the head of the middle fork of the Tulum. It is said to have been discovered by Joseph Screech, a hunter, in 1850, a year before the discovery of the Great Yosemite. After my first visit to it in the autumn of 1871, I have always called it the Tulum Yosemite, for it is a wonderfully exact counterpart of the Merced Yosemite, not only in its sublime rocks and waterfalls, but in its gardens, groves, and meadows of flowery park-like floor. The floor of Yosemite is about 4,000 feet above the sea, the Hetch Hetchy floor about 3,700 feet. And as the Merced River flows through Yosemite, so does the Tulum through Hetch Hetchy. The walls of both are grey granite, rise abruptly from the floor, are sculpted in the same style, and in both every rock is a glacier monument. Standing boldly out from the south wall is a striking, picturesque rock called by the natives Colana, the outermost of a group of 2,300 feet high, corresponding with the cathedral rocks of Yosemite, both in relative position and form. On the opposite side of the valley, facing Colana, there is a counterpart of the El Capitan that rises sheer and plain to a height of 1,800 feet and over its massive brow flows a stream which makes the most graceful fall I have ever seen. From the edge of the cliff 
to the top of an earthquake talus that is perfectly free in the air for a thousand feet before it is broken into cascades among the talus boulders. It is in all its glory in June, when the snow is melting fast but fades and vanishes towards the end of summer. The only fall I know with which it may fairly be compared is the Yosemite Bridal Veil, but it excels even that favourite fall, both in height and airy fairy beauty and behaviour. Lowlanders are apt to suppose that mountain streams in their wild career over cliffs lose control of themselves and tumble in a noisy chaos of mist and spray. On the contrary, on no part of their travels are they more harmonious and self-controlled. Imagine yourself in Hetch Hetchy on a sunny day in June, standing waist-deep in grass and flowers, as I have often stood, while the great pines sway dreamily with scarcely perceptible motion. Looking northward, across the valley, you see a plain, grey granite cliff rising abruptly out of the gardens and groves to a height of 1,800 feet, and in front of it, Tallulah's silvery scarf burning with irised sunfire. In the first white outburst, at the head, there is an abundance of visible energy, but it is speedily hushed and concealed in divine repose, and its tranquil progress to the base of the cliff is like that of downy feather in a still room. Now observe the finesse and marvellous distinctness of the various sun-illuminated fabrics into which the water is woven. They sift and float from form to form down the face of that grand grey rock in so leisurely and unconfused a manner that you may examine their texture and pattern and tones of colour as you would a piece of embroidery held in the hand. Towards the top of the fall, you see groups of booming, comet-like masses, their solid, white heads separate, their tails like combed silk, interlacing among delicate grey and purple shadows, ever forming and dissolving, worn out by friction in their rush through the air. Most of these vanish a few hundred feet below the summit, changing to the varied forms of cloud-like drapery. Near the bottom of the width, the fall has increased from about 25 feet to 100 feet. Here it is composed of yet finer tissues, and is still without a trace of disorder. Air, water, and sunlight, woven into stuff that spirits might wear. So fine a fall might well seem sufficient to glory any valley, but here, as in Yosemite, nature seems in no wise moderate, for a short distance to the eastward of the Tallulah booms and thunders the great Hetch Hetchy Fall, Wapama, so near that you have both of them in full view from the same standpoint. It is the counterpart of the Yosemite Fall, but has a much greater volume of water, is about 1700 feet in height, 
and appears to be nearly vertical, though considerably inclined, and is dashed into huge, outbound bosses of foam on projecting shelves and knobs. No two falls could be more unlike. Tulula out in the open sunshine, descending like thistledown. Wapama in a jagged, shadowy gorge, roaring and plundering, pounding its way like an earthquake avalanche. Besides this glorious pair, there was a broad, massive fall on the main river a short distance above the head of the valley. Its position is something like that of the Vernal in Yosemite, and its roar as it plunges into a surging trout pool may be heard a long way, though it is only about twenty feet high. On Ranchiera Creek, a large stream corresponding in position with the Yosemite Tanaya Creek, there is a chain of cascades joining here and there with swift, flashing plumes like the one between the Vernal and Nevada Falls, making magnificent shows as they go, their glacier-sculpted way, sliding, leaping, hurrahing, covering with crisp, clashing spray, made glorious with sifting sunshine. And besides all these, a few small streams come over the wall at wide intervals, leaping from ledge to ledge with bird-like song and watering a hidden cliff garden and fernery, but they are too small and unshowy to be noticed in so grand a place. The correspondence between the Hetch Hetchy walls in their trends, sculpture, physical structure, and general arrangement of the main rock masses and those of the Yosemite Valley has excited the wandering admiration of every observer. We have seen that the El Capitan and Cathedral Rocks occupy the same relative position in both valleys, so also do their Yosemite points and north domes. Again, that part of the Yosemite North Wall, immediately to the east of the Yosemite Fall, has two horizontal benches, about 500 and 1500 feet above the floor, timbered with gold cap oak. Two benches similarly situated and timbered occur on the same relative portion of the Hetch Hetchy North Wall, to the east of Wapama Fall, and on no other. The Yosemite is bounded at the head by the Great Half Dome. Hetch Hetchy is bounded in the same way, though its head rock is incomparably less wonderful and sublime in form. The floor of the valley is about three and a half miles long, and from a fourth to half a mile wide. The lower portion is mostly a level meadow about a mile long, with the trees restricted to the sides and the riverbanks, and partially separated from the main, upper forested portion by a low bar of glacier-polished granite, across which the river breaks in rapids. The principal trees are the yellow and sugar pines, digger pine, incense cedar, Douglas spruce, silver fir, the California and golden cap oaks, balsam cottonwood, nuttles flowering dogwood, alder, maple, laurel, tumion, etc. 
The most abundant and influential are the great yellow or silver pines, like those of Yosemite, the tallest over 200 feet in height, and the oaks assembled in magnificent groves with massive rugged trunks four to six feet in diameter, and broad, shady, wide-spreading heads, the shrubs forming conspicuous flowery clumps and tangles are Mazanita, Azalea, Spirea, Brea Rose, several species of Senatus, Calacathus, Philadelphus, Wild Cherry, etc., with abundance of showy and fragrant herbaceous plants growing about them or out in the open in beds by themselves. Lilies, mariposa, tulips, brodiaeas, orchids, iris, sprigaea, drapria, colomia, colusia, castiea, nemophila, larkspur, columbine, goldenrods, sunflowers, mints of many species, honeysuckle, etc. Many fine firs dwell here also, especially the beautiful and interesting rock ferns, Pilea and Chilanthia of several species, fringing and rosetting dry rock piles and ledges, Woodwardia and Aspelenium on damp spots with fronds six or seven feet high, the delicate maidenhair in mossy nooks by the falls, and the sturdy, broad-shouldered terrace covering nearly all the dry ground beneath the oak and pines. It appears, therefore, that Hetch Hetchy Valley, far from being a plain, common, rock-bound meadow, as many who have not seen it seem to suppose, is a grand landscape garden, one of nature's rarest and most precious mountain temples. As in Yosemite, the sublime rocks of its walls seem to glow with life, whether leaning back in repose or standing erect in thoughtful attitudes, giving welcome to storms and calms alike. Their brows in the sky, their feet set in groves and gay flowery meadows, while birds, bees, and butterflies help the river and waterfalls to stir all the air into music. Things frail and fleeting, and types of permanence meeting here and blending, just as they do in Yosemite, to draw her lovers into close and confiding communion with her. Sad to say, this most precious and sublime feature of the Yosemite National Park, one of the greatest of all our natural resources for the uplifting joy and peace and health of the people, is in danger of being dammed and made into a reservoir to help supply San Francisco with water and light, thus flooding it from wall to wall and burying its gardens and groves one or two hundred feet deep. This grossly destructive commercial scheme has long been planned and urged, though water as pure and abundant can be got from outside of the People's Park in a dozen different places. Because of the comparative cheapness of the dam and of the territory which it is sought to divert from, 
the great uses to which it was dedicated in the Act of 1890, establishing the Yosemite National Park. The making of the gardens and parks go on with civilization all over the world, and they increase both in size and number as their value is recognized. Everybody needs beauty as well as bread, places to play in and pray in, where nature may heal and cheer and give strength to body and soul alike. This natural beauty hunger is made manifest in the little windowsill gardens of the poor, though perhaps only a geranium slip in a broken cup, as well as in the carefully tended rose and lily gardens of the rich. The thousands of spacious city parks and botanical gardens, and in our magnificent national parks, the Yellowstone, Yosemite, Sequoia, etc. Nature's sublime wonderlands, the admiration and joy of the world. Nevertheless, like anything else worthwhile, from the very beginning, however well guarded, they have always been subject to attack by despoiling gain-seekers and mischief-makers of every degree, from Satan to senators, eagerly trying to make everything immediately and selfishly commercial, with schemes disguised in smug smiling philanthropy, industriously, champiously crying. Conservation, conservation, panutilization. That man and beast may be fed and the dear nation made great. Thus long ago, a few enterprising merchants utilized the Jerusalem temple as a place of business instead of a place of prayer, changing money, buying and selling cattle and sheep and doves, and earlier still, the first forest reservation, including only one tree, was likewise despoiled. Ever since the establishment of the Yosemite National Park, strife has been going on around its borders, and I suppose this will go on as a part of the universal battle between right and wrong. However much its boundaries may be shorn, or its wild beauty destroyed. The first application to the government by the San Francisco supervisors for the commercial use of Lake Eleanor and the Hetch Hetchy Valley was made in 1903, and on December 22nd of that year, it was denied by the Secretary of the Interior, Mr. Hitchcock, who truthfully said, Presumably, the Yosemite National Park was created such by law because within its boundaries, inclusive alike of its beautiful small lakes like Eleanor and its majestic wonders like Hetch Hetchy and Yosemite Valley, It is the aggregation of such natural scenic features that makes the Yosemite Park a wonderland which the Congress of the United States sought by law to reserve for all coming time as nearly as practicable in the condition fashioned by the hand of the Creator, a worthy object of national pride and a source of healthful pleasure and rest for the thousands of people who may annually sojourn there during their heated months. In 1907, when Mr. Garfield became Secretary of the Interior, the application was renewed and granted. But under his successor, Mr. Fisher, 
The matter has been referred to a commission, which as this volume goes to press, still has it under consideration. The most delightful and wonderful campgrounds in the park are its three great valleys, Yosemite, Hetch Hetchy, and Upper Tulum, and they are also the most important places with reference to their positions relative to the other great features, the Merced and Tulum canyons, and the high Sierra peaks and glaciers, etc., at the head of the rivers. The main part of the Tulum Valley is a spacious, flowery lawn, four or five miles long, surrounded by magnificent snowy mountains, slightly separated from one another, and beautiful meadows, which together make a series about 12 miles in length, the highest reaching to the feet of Mount Dana, Mount Gibbs, Mount Lyle, and Mount McClure. It is about 8,500 feet above the sea, and forms the grand central High Sierra campground from which excursions are made to the noble mountains, domes, glaciers, etc., across the range to the Mono Lake and volcanoes, and down the Tulum Canyon to Hetch Hetchy. Should Hetch Hetchy be submerged for a reservoir, as proposed, not only would it be utterly destroyed, but the sublime canyonway to the heart of the High Sierra would be hopelessly blocked, and the great camping ground, as the watershed of a city drinking system, virtually would be closed to the public. So far as I have learned, few of all the thousands who have seen the park and seen rest and peace in it are in favour of this outrageous scheme. One of my later visits to the valley was made in the autumn of 1907 with the late William Keith, the artist. The leaf colours were then ripe, and the great godlike rocks in repose seemed to glow with life. The artist, under their spell, wandered day after day along the river and through the groves and gardens, studying the wonderful scenery, and after making about forty sketches, declared with enthusiasm that although its walls were less sublime in height, in picturesque beauty and charm, Hetch Hetchy surpassed even Yosemite. That anyone would try to destroy such a place seems incredible, but sad experience shows that there are people good enough and bad enough for anything. The proponents of the Dan scheme bring forward a lot of bad arguments to prove that the only righteous thing to do with the People's Park is to destroy them bit by bit as they are able. Their arguments are curiously like those of the devil, devised for the destruction of the first garden, so much of the very best Eden fruit going to waste, so much of the best Tulum water and Tulum scenery going to waste. Few of their statements are even partly true, and all are misleading. These temple destroyers, devotees of ravaging commercialism, seem to have a perfect contempt for nature, and instead of lifting their eyes to the god of the mountains, lift them to the almighty dollar. Dam Hetchetchi, as well dam for water tanks for the people's cathedral and churches, for no holier temple has ever been consecrated 
by the heart of man.